a rare public protest in Beijing, standing up against China's zero-COVID policy, even condemning Chinese leader Xi Jinping by name. Beijing put on China's censorship blacklist. Internet police appear to be working overtime. Controversies brewing over a New York nonprofit, and it's having funded a Wuhan lab tied to the Chinese military. Now it's getting federal research dollars. Rising tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Another missile launch and military aircraft close to the north-south border, alongside nuclear threats. And an expert gives his take on whether the U.S. would send troops to Taiwan if China invades. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A rare public protest in China's capital, erupting against the Chinese regime's zero COVID-19 policy and communist leader Xi Jinping. It happened Thursday, just a few days ahead of the upcoming Communist Party Congress meeting. Videos circulating online show black smoke rising from a prominent overpass in the Chinese capital. Two banners were hung on the bridge. One of them reads, say no to COVID-19 tests, yes to food, no to lockdowns, yes to freedom, no to lies, yes to dignity, no to cultural revolution, yes to reform, no to the great leader, yes to voting, don't be a slave, be a citizen. The other reads, let's go on strike from classes and work and remove the traitorous dictator Xi Jinping. A loudspeaker on the bridge repeated the slogans. As of late Thursday, dozens of police were still patrolling the area and entering stores. At times, they stopped pedestrians and questioned them. Police denied anything unusual had happened in the area. The protest is believed to have been a one-man operation. According to a Chinese writer who's based outside China, the protester has been identified as Peng Lifa from northeast China. His online alias is Peng Zaizhou. His actions appear to have been pre-planned and timed. Here's why. The overpass, the Sitong Bridge, is around 300 yards in length and can only be accessed from its two ends. This is likely why it took time for the police to take action. It's also highly unusual for Xi Jinping to be condemned by name during protests. Demonstrators often use euphemisms or implied phrasing and images in efforts to evade censorship and retaliation. The protester is believed to have been arrested and will likely face severe punishment. China's zero-COVID-19 policy has led to frequent lockdowns and caused heavy economic damage. It has fueled widespread frustration in Chinese cities. Since the protest, China's internet censors appear to have been in overdrive. Posts related to the protests have been removed from social media platforms, although some indirect references could be found as of Thursday afternoon. Some users called the person who organized it a brave man. But by Friday, the word brave was added to the country's internet censorship blacklist, alongside other terms like bridge, hero, and even Beijing. Even commentary vaguely related to the incident has been removed. Examples include a post predicting an upcoming rainstorm and posts with smiley face and bear emojis. Apple Music and other streaming services removed the song Sitong Bridge from its Chinese streaming service. That's the bridge where the incident took place. China has the world's largest online population. 
Authorities carefully track commentary and quash any criticism of Communist Party leader Xi Jinping and the communist regime. Though the news is suppressed in China, the incident is spreading like wildfire on international outlets. U.S. Senator Todd Young wrote, They, the protesters, will undoubtedly be punished by the authorities. But I pray their acts will encourage more Chinese citizens to fight for a better future than the one imposed on them by the CCP. China saw several rare protests in 2022, from rallies against a banking fraud scandal to mortgage strikes and anti-lockdown protests. These come ahead of the Chinese Communist Party Congress meeting this weekend, when Xi Jinping is likely to secure an unprecedented third term. Here's more. In July, a filmed protest in China went viral. Plain-clothed officers violently broke up demonstrators outside a bank in Zhengzhou. People wanted to know why they had lost access to their savings in a banking fraud scandal. Entrepreneur Xi, who only gave his surname, did not protest in July, but had joined a protest two months earlier. He said he was not able to access his savings of hundreds of thousands of dollars due to the scandal which centered on a string of rural lenders. It's unbelievable because I chose to deposit into the bank as I was risk-averse and didn't want to invest. I simply deposited it in a state-approved bank. Now the money can't be withdrawn and it's affecting me badly. I may soon have to sell my apartment because I have no more money on hand. I can only sell my house, after which I can have at least food, drink, shelter and living expenses. Right now, I feel like my world is collapsing. There are no solutions. Vocal protests are not common in China, and the bank scuffle took place at a politically sensitive time, as Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to be appointed for a third term, ensuring his place as China's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. The protests are part of a broader swell of public dissent, from mortgage strikes to COVID lockdown protests, with anger also being vented online. And the protests have persisted despite a security clampdown and fears of repercussions. Lei Jingming, who participated in the July protest, was adamant in voicing his dissatisfaction. I'm scared that I have to do it so that I can live the rest of my life with security. Otherwise, without this money, the rest of my life could be worse than death. What do you think I should do? Even if I lose my life, I want to get that money back. The worst is if I die and I don't get the money back. Then I would have died with regrets. Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University, Daniel Mattingly, said the lack of enthusiasm for political change is likely to continue. I think the threshold for taking to the streets to demand large-scale political change is pretty high, and it's hard for me to connect the dots between you know, these pretty specific grievances about specific policies that the government can eventually sort of meet. Um, it's hard for me to see this translating into some sort of larger political movement demanding political change. Chinese authorities say social stability is the foundation for a prosperous future. They dismiss human rights complaints as Western propaganda and interference in internal affairs. 
The head of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, is widely expected to secure a third leadership term at the 20th Party Congress this Sunday. The move would cement his stature as China's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. How did he manage to amass so much control? Let's take a closer look. Xi has been the head of the Communist Party in China's military for a decade. In that time, he has moved China from a tradition of collective leadership to what is now seen as supreme leadership. Let's take a look at how he managed to amass so much control. On entering office in 2012, Xi undertook a sweeping campaign to purge officials deemed disloyal, corrupt or ineffective. Those that were purged included rivals for power like this man, the popular former Chongqing party chief, Bo Xilai. Xi then built his power base by filling the vacant posts with allies, all the while expanding the state's economic role. As of April this year, 4.7 million officials have been investigated. Xi has also asserted control over party propaganda, telling state media in 2016 that their surname is the Communist Party. Since then, media freedoms have steadily decreased under Xi, while Xi-related propaganda has steadily increased. One of Xi's key moves to amass power came six years into his presidency in 2018, when he amended the country's constitution to abolish term limits. There's now no obstacle to the 69-year-old ruling for life. A year before that, he had amended the party constitution to include Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics. Having an eponymous ideology put him on par only with Mao and Deng Xiaoping. We do not promise to renounce the use of force and reserve the option to use all necessary measures. It is aimed at foreign forces who seek to interfere and the tiny minority of Taiwan independent separatists and their separatist activities. Xi has tightened control of the military by initiating sweeping reforms and retrenchment from 2015. He has also been increasingly assertive on the world stage, continuing his support for Russia's Vladimir Putin despite the invasion of Ukraine, intensifying pressure to seize Taiwan and asserting control over Hong Kong. China cannot uh, weaken its quasi-alliance with uh, Putin, with Russia. Uh, China doesn't have many friends around the world, and uh, Putin is one of those uh, most trustworthy uh, uh, friends and, and, and uh, partners. Xi's consolidation of power has been seemingly unimpeded by recent challenges, from a stumbling economy to an increasingly out-of-step zero-COVID policy. Official scholars argue a country as big and diverse as China requires a strong central authority, but critics point to China's persistence with policies despite blowback as evidence of the risks of increasingly authoritarian rule. U.S. lawmakers are sounding the alarm about a nonprofit in New York. The organization stirred up controversy for using federal money to work with a lab in Wuhan, China, on risky bio-research. Let's look at the latest concerns. Over 30 House and Senate lawmakers are raising concerns. That's over sending federal funding to a nonprofit that has ties to China's controversial Wuhan lab. The nonprofit in question is called Equal Health Alliance. The organization has been at the center of controversy for working with a lab tied to the Chinese military. The lab is called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. 
And here's what happened. Equal Health Alliance received grant dollars from the National Institutes of Health, and it used the money to do research with the Wuhan lab. The two experimented on how to make a virus spread more easily among humans, and the Wuhan lab ended up in a massive debate on whether it had leaked the virus that caused the COVID-19 pandemic. On top of this, the Wuhan lab has been working with the Chinese military on classified research since 2017. The NIH was later dragged into the controversy as the situation raised questions about whether the NIH maintains enough oversight over risky bio research. As the controversy continued to brew, the NIH requested information from Equal Health about its research with the Wuhan lab. In 2020, it suspended grant dollars to the nonprofit until it provided the information requested. But lawmakers say EcoHealth never provided records of that research, and despite that, the NIH has resumed funding for EcoHealth over the next five years. It already sent the nonprofit over six hundred thousand dollars as an initial payment. The lawmakers have written a letter to the director of the NIH, asking him to end the grant relationship. NTD reached out to the NIH for comment, but did not receive a response before airtime. Tensions are escalating on the Korean Peninsula, with Seoul scrambling fighter jets and slapping fresh sanctions on Pyongyang. That's after the North sent a group of warplanes flying close to the border with the South, and fired yet another missile on Friday. This is the North's eighth missile launch within just four weeks. Here's more. South Korea scrambled fighter jets on Friday after about 10 North Korean military aircraft flew close to their shared border, according to Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff. The office said Pyongyang also launched yet another short-range ballistic missile into the sea towards the east and fired some 170 artillery shots off its east and west coasts. In response, Seoul slapped fresh sanctions against Pyongyang, the first in nearly five years, blacklisting 15 North Korean individuals and 16 institutions involved in missile development. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol on Friday slammed what he called the North's provocations and vowed to come up with watertight countermeasures. North Korea's official KCNA news agency quoted the country's military as saying it was taking quote strong military countermeasures after South Korean artillery fire drills on Thursday. The South said its drills were a quote regular legitimate exercise. These incidents follow a KCNA report on Thursday that leader Kim Jong Un had overseen the launch of two long-range strategic cruise missiles that could carry nuclear weapons. The unprecedented frequency of North Korea's missile launches has raised concerns it may be preparing to resume testing of nuclear bombs for the first time since 2017. Earlier this week, North Korea said its missile tests were a simulation of a nuclear attack to wipe out enemies. It hinted at South Korea and the U.S. Of those, South Korea may be facing the larger threat. It not only shares a border with North Korea, but also has Russia and China located just across the sea. Recently, North Korea and Russia issued nuclear threats to democratic countries. China didn't issue one, but Beijing is also nuclear capable. As the democracy at the furthest front line, what should South Korea do? Yong Jun Lee, former South Korea's deputy foreign minister, says the nation must reach out for support from allies. 
냉각되어 있는 한일 관계도 다시 회복을 하고 그리고 좀 멀리 떨어져 있긴 하지만 나토와도 어떤 식으로든지 협력 관계, 군사적인 협력 관계를 맺어서 Lee also served as South Korea's nuclear envoy with a focus on North Korea's nuclear threat. He went on to say that only with help from allies could South Korea handle the worst-case scenario if it arose. If China invaded Taiwan, would the U.S. send troops to defend it? We spoke with James Carafano, the Heritage Foundation's vice president for national security and foreign policy, to find out more. James, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. So right now, the Russian war in Ukraine is still big in the headlines. And also kind of ending in the headlines is Beijing potentially invading Taiwan. And there's different messages coming out of Washington. But mm. if the U.S. were to put troops in Taiwan, how would that impact the average American? I don't see a scenario where U.S. troops are put in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is not a treaty ally of the United States. We have a, a commitment that we have made to contribute to helping Taiwan's self-defense. That's in America's interest. I think we'll honor that commitment. I think that commitment will come in terms of many forms, including diplomatic, political support, economic engagement, certainly uh, the, helping provide Taiwan military capabilities to help the Taiwanese defend themselves. But the single, single biggest contribution the United States can make to the defense of Taiwan is the commitment to keep open the, the, the Straits of Taiwan as, as for free and open traffic. So the United States has to, has to and, and should exercise the ability to defend uh, air and sea space that's the, the biggest contribution that the United States can make. Having American troops on the ground in Taiwan actually isn't, wouldn't really be militarily significant. Coming up, why is Taiwan so important to the U.S.? And does Beijing or Washington hold the military upper hand? In the second half of our interview, James Carafano breaks down these questions and more. We bring you his take in just a minute here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If Taiwan fell into communist China's hands, why would the mainland U.S. be under threat? And between Beijing and Washington, who holds the ultimate military might? James Carafano further breaks it down for us. And James, given these parallels drawn between Russia, Ukraine, Beijing, Taiwan, what are some of the key differences between the two? Yeah, I, I think from a U.S. perspective, the key difference is the, the, the level of interest for the United States. Uh, an independent Ukraine is important to the United States because we know that both Russia and China's interests never stopped with Ukraine. For the Russians, they wanted to reconquer all the post-Soviet space, to have dictatorial control over Central Europe, to see NATO dissolved, to see the United States really pushed into the sea, exactly what the Chinese wanted. So Ukraine, supporting Ukraine's self-defense helped contribute to a, a vital interest of the United States, which, which really is the, 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 the collective defense that NATO provides. 
but Ukraine itself is not a vital interest. And that's why the United States and NATO are not a party to the conflict. Ukraine's not a treaty ally. If it was, it would be a different situation. I think Taiwan's different. I do think that Taiwan is a, the independence of Taiwan is, is a, a vital interest for the United States. And it's not because they make chips or they're a democracy or we do trade. It's because of the, the geostrategic location of Taiwan. It is arguably the key island in the first island chain. And if communist China controlled everything in the first island chain by force from, from Taiwan to the South China Seas, that I think is a, a strategic blow to the United States that really ends the United States' role as an Asian power. China has uh, diesel-powered submarines. They're relatively short range and, and relatively noisy, so they're easy to find and easy to kill. Diesel submarines that are armed with nuclear weapons, which which are like a, what's really a, what's called a second strike capability, because you could put them out there at sea, hide them, and then even if you hit their land-based capabilities, you could fire these. So it's why the United States has a robust nuclear-armed fleet. Um, so even though the Chinese submarine threat is not significant, if China controlled all the waters between Taiwan uh, and the coast of China, the, the Chinese could sneak their submarines out, of, their diesel submarines out of port and, and hide them there. And we couldn't get at them because we couldn't conduct what's called anti-submarine warfare, ASW warfare. And James, on the note of the strategic balance, there's experts saying both things, right? Some experts are saying China's already surpassed our military might, and others are saying, no, the U.S. is still the supreme military might. So which is it, in your opinion? Well, they're both right. Um, on the one hand, if you just add up all the systems, arguably the United States does have more global military capability than China. The problem for the U.S. perspective is the United States is a global power with global interests and global responsibilities. China, from a military perspective, is still a regional power. So China can concentrate all its military capability in the Indo-Pacific, in the first island chain. The United States can't do that. So in some ways, that does give China an advantage. I mean, for them, fighting in the Indo-Pacific it's not just their only theater of war, it's a home game. For us, it's an away game, and it's part of really the global responsibility to protect U.S. interests. The other issue really is you know, quantity versus quality. Numerically, uh, the Russians had enormous advantages over the Ukrainians in, in all forces, air, sea, space, and land. And yet the Russian army, because of its level of training and, and competence of leadership and the quality of logistics, actually fared quite poorly, even against a, a, an inferior Ukrainian force. China hasn't fought an armed conflict on a large scale since, since its war with Vietnam many, many decades ago. This is a military that's untested in combat. It's a military that's still in part in transitioning from being primarily about providing domestic security and strategic deterrence to being able to deploy and, and fight at an operational level, and both operational level means over big distances, like if you think of the long distance, for example, between the mainland and Taiwan, in, in multi-domain, which means you know air, sea, space, land, under the sea, um, 
and uh, uh, in, in long campaigns, which require logistics, like moving supplies and everything else. The Chinese have not done this for a very, very long time. So their military is, in a sense, untested. So that, the, the, there's some equilibrium or, or some imbalance in, in the military capabilities or uncertainty. Um, and so could the Chinese launch a major campaign and think with confidence that they could overcome the United States? Today, I would say no. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.